If you would take your scriptures, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter 3, we'll be reading the entire chapter. First Peter 3, would you give ear to the reading of God's word? Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good, and are not afraid with any terror. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayer may, be not, may not be hindered. Finally, all of you, be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing knowing that you are called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the good answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning because we know you are the one and only true and living God. The Apostle John tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He also tells us that Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Father, 
We come to this, your word, to learn of you and of this marvelous plan of redemption you have given us. Help us to apply your truth in our hearts and lives this morning as we study your word. In Christ's name, amen. Last week, we began looking at the doctrine of suffering Peter put forward in answer to his teaching on submission. To submit to the authorities instituted by men is guaranteed to bring suffering. Men have evil natures, hard hearts. They are concerned mainly with themselves. And that makes for a hard time for those who are under their authority. In the first part of this message, we learn that even in times of suffering, there will be encouragement for those who place their trust in God, in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That confidence in God will grow deeper and deeper as obedience to his word is practiced. We also saw that assurance can be found in the midst of suffering through study of God's word and prayer. But this was just the beginning of Peter's teaching on this doctrine of suffering. There is not one single person that lives, that lives in this world that doesn't know what it means to suffer. Suffering is a part of life on this planet. It's called, it was caused by Adam's failure in the garden. God created the perfect place for man to live and fellowship with him. He endowed man with everything he needed to enjoy his fellowship. He gave man the opportunity to be a part of this fellowship through choice. Man was told, be obedient and enjoy a wonderful life with God in this great garden. Disobey and you will lose fellowship with God. You will live a miserable existence until death brings you down to hell and an eternal state of suffering. You know what happened. Sin entered this world through Adam's choice and with it came suffering, agony, and death. God loved his creation. And he was not disposed to allow all of his creation to be lost. He promised to send one, one who would save his people from this terrible, terrible curse of death, from this life of suffering. That one, as we all know, was Jesus Christ. Christ came to do for men what they could no longer do for themselves. He came to free his people from their sins, to deliver them from the eternal consequences of their sin. According to God's law, in order to accomplish this, he had to come into this world and take on our flesh and live under the law and fulfill every part of its requirements. By God's grace and mercy, he's done this. For those who are familiar with the Gospels, you know that in accomplishing all that was required for your salvation, Christ had to suffer much at the hands of men. He did not enter this world in a position of privilege, but as the lowest of men. He was born to the poorest of the poor in a stable, laid in a feed trough, and wrapped in rags. During his life, he did not gather for himself riches, but came to the end of his life with nothing but the clothes on his back as his material estate. This one sent to save you from your sin was in the eyes of men despised and rejected. 
He suffered throughout his life at the hands of men and even more so in his death. Peter gives us this doctrine of suffering and he takes it from the life of this one who gave himself over to a suffering that was not his own. He endured all of this, this terrible agony, in order to set you free from an eternity of even worse pain. Let us consider the second part of of Peter's teaching on suffering this morning, the blessing in suffering. First, he shows us this wonderful example that Christ gives us. Second, he explains the necessity of perseverance under suffering. Third, he reminds us of the promise of God. And last, he assures us of the blessings we shall receive through our suffering. These five verses are some of the hardest to interpret in all of Scripture. I don't begin to claim that my interpretation of them is the only one. I have tried to approach this from the idea that the interpretation I follow is one that fits with the overall message that Peter gives on submission and suffering. Let's begin in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The word for that he begins this verse with links its meaning uh, directly to the preceding verses. It ties it together. And thus ties this section to the teaching Peter is doing on the doctrine of suffering. He has told you about the importance of suffering for good. We have also heard him tie the unjust suffering of slaves and wives to the unjust suffering of Christ. Here, he places the suffering of all believers next to that of their Lord. The one thing you need to be careful with here is that there is no way you can use Christ's suffering on the cross as your example. The reason I say that is because his suffering on the cross is a very unique thing that can never be duplicated by anybody. The NIV translates this first phrase, for Christ also died once for sins. I do not believe the NIV does any harm theologically to the passage with this interpretation. The statement is true. Christ did die for our sins. But translating it suffered instead of died is more in keeping with Peter's overall message. The Greek word comes from patho, and it literally means to suffer. Peter consistently taught that Christ suffered for sins. This was very much in keeping with the teachings of Scripture. Hebrews 9, 25 and 26. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The high priest never finished his work. He was always having to come back and do it again. Jesus Christ came and through his sacrifice and his his suffering completed the work of redemption once and for all time. And he did this through all of his suffering in his life and in his death. Another very important part of the doctrine of suffering is tied to the justice of God. 
Look at what Peter says concerning Christ. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life, who kept the law in full, is the righteous one and the only just one. There's no other. In his righteousness, he took upon himself the sins of his unrighteous people. Please note, Jesus Christ did not suffer for those who are righteous. He suffered for those who are unrighteous. Remember Psalm 53, verses 2 and 3? God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. Every one of them is turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. There are no righteous men coming from Adam by ordinary generation. Jesus Christ came to save unrighteous, undeserving, unworthy men from their sins. In Acts 3.14, Peter calls Christ the holy and the just. Jesus is righteous. He is without sin. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus came into this world to fulfill the demands of God's justice. One of those demands was the miserable condition of all who rebelled against God. Christ took on that misery. He suffered what was rightly yours as a sinner. He also paid the penalty that you could never pay, an atoning death. He willingly offered himself on Calvary's cross in your place as a sacrifice. He offered himself a sacrifice, as the author of Hebrews says, to take away the sins of many people. The benefits accruing to those who trust in Christ and in Christ alone for their salvation is entrance into the presence of God. Peter says, Jesus did all of this in order to bring you to God. Jesus, through his sacrifice, opens the way to God for his people. He introduces you to the Father. Remember John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's through Jesus alone that you are established in a relationship with the Father. It's through Jesus you have the removal of the guilt of your sin. It was this guilt that was the cause of your alienation. Jesus has opened access to God, your Heavenly Father. He made you acceptable in God's sight by the offering of himself. The next phrase in verse 18 declares that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. This is one phrase that causes much trouble for interpreters. It's difficult. The trouble comes in the capitalization of the word spirit. Some translators capitalize it, others do not. I think it should be, because I believe the overall teaching of Scripture would dictate its capitalization because it speaks of the Holy Spirit. Peter says he was put to death in the flesh. Christ came to die and through his death win the victory over sin, Satan, and death. He had to do this through a body like ours. After having accomplished this work and having done so through his perfect life and atoning death, he was made alive in the spirit and given the victory over his enemies. Now, here's the the problem with this. 
Some believe it was just in the spirit of the man, Jesus. I don't agree with that. He was made alive through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the one who carried that life. The fact scripture at other places says it was the Father who raised him and in still other places that he had the power to him, in himself to, to overcome death does not preclude Peter's statement from being correct. The scriptures often refer to different members of the triune God doing the same work. It is not wrong to say the Father raised Christ or that Christ overcame death himself or that the Spirit raised him. It's all the work of God. In this, Peter gives the example that Jesus came into this world, that he was obedient unto the Father's will, even unto death. This is the example Peter is calling you to take hold of and use in your life. Jesus was focused not on himself, but on the needs of his people. I don't know about you, but I find that to be great comfort. He laid aside the glory he had with the Father. He did that to come into the world and suffer. Through that suffering, you have been set free from the power and guilt of your sins. Since Christ has done so much for you, follow his example. Give to others as though they were better than yourself. Offer your life. Offer it as a witness of the wonderful love given to you through Jesus Christ. He next speaks of the necessity required to carry out such a witness. Verses 19, verses 20, verses 19 through 28. By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Here again, the controversy continues. I'm not going to go through all the arguments and differing ideas put forth. I'm going to give you the interpretation I think best fits the overall teachings of Peter and Scripture. You must first determine to whom the by whom refers. What is the antecedent to the whom? I believe it's the closest noun, which is the word spirit. Thus, also this also adds weight to the capitalization argument for spirit. This verse says that Christ went to those who came before his incarnation and he ministered the message of salvation to them through the Holy Spirit. It says he went and preached to the spirits in prison. The word prison refers to the law's power of those who lived under it. Galatians 3.23 But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterwards be revealed. Now, according to John Calvin's commentary on this passage, it would appear Peter is saying those who lived under the law had limited knowledge of the gospel from the law. So the gospel was enhanced in them by the Holy Spirit. They had the basics, basic knowledge that one was coming and they trusted in him and in him alone. The Holy Spirit preached the gospel to them in order to enhance their faith and give them a glimpse of Christ's completed work. The next phrase in verse 20 is the really hard one to understand. Who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. 
Again, John Calvin translates this, who disobeyed long ago, to say, who formerly were disobedient. Now to us that might sound a little bit simple, but there's an idea behind it. The idea behind his translation is that these people who were saved were held in prison, the prison of the law, and they were a very small minority. It was a time when the world was ruled by the unregenerate, when everyone did what was right in his own eyes. His point is, those called in this time had to rely on the power of God alone to carry them through. It required great perseverance to endure. They were completely governed by unbelievers and yet were under the same duty Peter had laid down on submission to all authorities. He uses Noah as an example and points out that from the whole world of that day, only eight souls were saved. Let me quote John Calvin on this again. The sum of what is said is this, that the world has always been full of unbelievers but that the godly ought not to be terrified by their vast number. For though Noah was surrounded on every side by the ungodly and had very few of his, as his friends, he was not yet drawn aside from the right course of his faith. In other words, Noah persevered. Peter's point in this is to build up your perseverance and faith and your trust in God. Don't look at the circumstances of life. They will deceive you. Don't be concerned with the current events, for they can mislead. Focus your attention on being what God has called you to be. Don't be concerned with the things of this world today. Be obedient. Obedient to every authority placed over you and accept the challenge of being a witness to everyone around you. You must consider them better than yourself. You must go out ministering to them with every fiber of your life. You must be willing to give away even your most precious possession, your life. You do this to show them the glory of God and the love of Jesus Christ. This is the example Peter says Christ is given and you should follow. And he makes clear this will require perseverance. There's a promise that accompanies this necessity of perseverance. Peter says, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water, there is also an antitype which now saves us baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. He relates the history of this event. Noah, who lived among the disobedient, persevered. He built an ark, and he and his family were saved by it. In this history, we see a picture of ourselves. Noah was saved by water, and we're saved by the baptism of water. In other words, Noah went through something similar to our baptism. What was it? Peter goes on to say, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Peter has just spoken to us in verse 15 about a commitment we should make to following God's will. Noah followed God's will, built the ark, and preached righteousness as he built it. In this, we see the Holy Spirit ministering to Noah and preaching righteousness through him to a disobedient people. 
we also see Noah submitting to God's direction and building the ark. In listening to God, he found salvation from the wrath and punishment of his sin. You as a believer in Jesus Christ are called to listen to God. You're called to follow his will. One of the first commands is to be, to be followed is to submit to baptism. Peter knows you're not saved by the physical act of baptism, but by the commitment of your heart to Jesus Christ. That's what baptism represents. It represents you're committing yourself to God. Note what he says in verse 21. He says the flood is an antitype or a corresponding action or a representative counterpart to baptism. He says this is the same thing Peter said in verse 15 by setting Christ apart in your heart. What did Noah do? When God called him, he built the ark. Took him hundreds of years to build that ark. What was he doing over that time? Preaching righteousness. The ark saved them from the flood and it acted as a reminder of our need to make our commitment to Christ, to submit ourselves to him. Here in is the promise of God that comes to those who submit themselves to all authorities, committing their lives to follow God's word, to seeing others as better than themselves, and preserving in, the preserving in their, their, their suffering. It is the promise that God will save all who trust in Jesus Christ and him alone for their salvation. He will clean their hearts and make them acceptable in his sight. Baptism represents your dying to self and being raised to life in Christ. It was the same thing with Noah and his family. They were saved from an evil and wicked society and given the opportunity to build a better society. Peter affirms this in the next section, verses 21b through 22. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. There's nothing, absolutely nothing in Scripture more basic to the Christian faith than the doctrine of Christ's resurrection. Peter led off this epistle with a discussion of the resurrection. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 4, And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. And you could say without fear of contradiction that without Christ's resurrection, your baptism would be worthless. It is upon his resurrection that our whole theological system of understanding is built. It is upon his resurrection that Peter builds his whole discourse on submission and suffering. Because of his resurrection, Christ is at the right hand of the Father. He came to that place through his suffering on your behalf in this world. His suffering has given to all who believe in him a worth a worth they could never have attained by their own efforts. He suffered as the righteous one for the unrighteous. He took your sins. He gave to you his righteousness. You can now, because he has been raised, because he has been seated at the Father's right hand, come to the throne of God with boldness. It's through his resurrection that you can stand before God with assurance and hope of eternal life. It's because he was raised that you can have faith to persevere in this evil world even when surrounded by those who are unregenerate. Peter adds this one last thing. He says, 
angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. He makes it abundantly clear that this Jesus Christ, this Christ who has been raised and upon whom you as a believer are to place all of your hope, is indeed one who is capable of bringing you to this eternal hope. Jesus says of himself in Matthew 28:18, He has been given all authority and power in heaven and on earth. Jesus declared this to his disciples as he was giving the great commission to the church, and Peter has not forgotten. The very call to be witnesses is tied back to Christ's power over all things. He has called you to be in submission to all authorities. He has called you to submit yourself to the same suffering Christ underwent. Why? So that you might be his witnesses. It's that simple. Suffering does not come to the believer because God is displeased with it. It comes because God knows without it there will be a loss of focus on the one who has rescued him, which will cause a return to his own ways. Suffering is very much a part of the assurance that comes through Jesus Christ and the work he did on behalf of his people. It's very important that you understand this doctrine of suffering. It's not something God does simply to make you feel bad or to punish you. However, you do need to to remember God does punish his children when they sin, but that's a different doctrine. The doctrine we are concerned with touches all men who call themselves believers. To become a Christian does not mean to be delivered instantly and forever from suffering. In fact, it means pretty much the opposite. To become a Christian brings you into much suffering. It is the suffering Jesus Christ endured as he walked this earth. It's caused by the evil that fills the hearts of those who are unregenerate. Noah struggled against it, as did all the other saints who have gone before him. Christ Christ gave us a very good example to following and dealing with his suffering. God uses it in the believer's life to show him the absolute necessity of perseverance and to ground his promise of an eternity without suffering. He also assures all who will place their trust in Christ alone as they suffer, there is a blessing coming. We need to keep that ever before us. If we're following God's will and we're suffering because of it, there is a blessing coming. There will always be a blessing for obedience. I would, as Christ did, call each of you to open your hearts and hear this message. Come to Jesus Christ. If you will come and take his yoke, you will find it is much easier than the yoke that requires you to work to earn your salvation. Jesus said his yoke was easy. Why is it easy? Because he does all the work. Yes, you will suffer, but you will suffer even worse and for far longer if you persist in trying to save yourself. The suffering you must endure as a believer is nothing, nothing compared to an eternity in hell. Please hear this message. 
Jesus Christ has come into this world to live the perfect life, to die the atoning death, and to win the resurrection victory on behalf of his people. On behalf of all who would hear and understand this gospel message. For all who would follow Christ in his example, who would willingly suffer in order to show others a better way. Let's pray. Father, you have told us whoever hears the words of Jesus and believes him who sent Jesus has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. We stand this day on your word, O Lord. We place our hope in Jesus Christ, your only begotten son, and all he did for us in living the perfect life, dying the atoning death, and winning the resurrection victory. Grant us the strength to hold fast in our faith, the courage to be witnesses of your grace, and the knowledge to refute error. We love you, O Lord. We appreciate all you have done for us through Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.